This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day to you. We are enjoying listening to a recently rediscovered speech given in London days before Martin Luther King Jr. received the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo. And before then, he stopped December 7th, 1964 to speak before a group called Christian Action. And Pacifica Radio Archives unearthed this audio of this speech just years ago. So we're going to go back and continue listening to Dr. King's speech. We can never forget the fact that just this summer, three civil rights workers were brutally murdered near Philadelphia, Mississippi. All of this reveals to us that we have not achieved the level of brotherhood. We have not achieved the brotherhood that we need and that we must have in our nation. We still have a long, long way to go. I mentioned voter registration and the fact that we had been able to add about 800,000 new registered voters in the last two or three years, the fact that it's over two million now, I guess that sounded like uh, real progress, and it does represent some progress. But let me give you the other side, and that is the fact that there are still more than 10 million Negroes living in the southern part of the United States, and some 6 million of the Negroes living in the southern part of the United States are of voting age, and yet only 2 million are registered. This means that four million remain unregistered, not merely because they are apathetic, not because they are complacent. This may be true of some few, but because all types of conniving methods are still being used to keep Negroes from becoming registered voters. Complex literacy tests are given, which make it almost impossible for anybody to pass a test even if he has a Ph.D. degree in any field or a law degree from the best law schools of the world. And then actual economic reprisals are often taken out against Negroes who seek to register and vote in some of the Black Belt counties of Mississippi and Alabama and other places. And then some are actually faced with physical violence and sometimes physical death. This reveals that we have a great deal that must be done in this area. I mentioned economic justice, and I'm sure that that figure, $28 billion, sounded very large. That's a lot of money. But then I must go on and give you the other side, if I'm to be honest about the picture. That is the fact that 42% of the Negro families of the United States still earn less than $2,000 a year, while just 16% of the white families earn less than $2,000 a year, 21% of the Negro families of America earn less than $1,000 a year, while just 5% of the white families earn less than $1,000 a year. And then we face the fact that 88% of the Negro families of America earn less than $5,000 a year, while just 58% of the white families earn less than $5,000 a year. So we can see that that is still a great gulf between the haves, so to speak, and the have-nots. And if America is to continue to grow and progress and develop and move on toward its greatness, this problem must be solved. 
Now, this economic problem is getting more serious because of many forces alive in our world. For many years, Negroes were denied adequate educational opportunities. For many years, Negroes were even denied apprenticeship training. And so the forces of labor and industry so often discriminated against Negroes. And this meant that the Negro ended up being limited by and large to unskilled and semi-skilled labor. Now because of the forces of automation and cybernation, these are the jobs that are now passing away. And so the Negro wakes up in a city like Detroit, Michigan, and discovers that he's 28% of the population and about 72% of the unemployed. Now in order to grapple with that problem, our federal government will have to develop massive retraining programs massive public works programs so that automation can be a blessing as it must be to our society and not a curse. Then the other thing, when we think of this economic problem, we must think of the fact that that is nothing more dangerous than to build a society with a segment in that society which feels that it has no stake in the society. There's nothing more dangerous than to build a society with a number of people who see life as little more than a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. They end up with despair because they have no jobs, because they can't educate their children, because they can't live in a nice home, because they can't have adequate health facilities. We always hear of the various reasons why and the various myths concerning integration and why integration shouldn't come into being. Those people who argue against integration at this point often say, well, uh, if you integrate the public schools, for instance, you will pull the white race back a generation. And they like to talk about the cultural lag in the Negro community. And then they go on to say, now, you know, the Negro is a criminal and he has the highest crime rate in any city that you can find in the United States. And uh, arguments go on ad infinitum, why integration shouldn't come into being. But I think there's an answer to that. And that is that if there is cultural lag in the Negro community, and there certainly is, this lag is there because of segregation and discrimination. It's there because of long years of slavery and segregation. Criminal responses are not racial, but environmental. Poverty, economic deprivation, social isolation, and all of these things breed crime, whatever the racial group may be. And it is a torturous logic to use the tragic results of racial segregation as an argument for the continuation of it. It is necessary to go back. And so it is necessary to see this to go all out to make economic justice a reality all over our nation. I mentioned that racial segregation is about dead in the United States, but it's still with us. We are about past the day of legal segregation. We have about ended de jure segregation where the laws of the nation or of a particular state can uphold it because of the Civil Rights Bill and the Supreme Court's decision and other things. Uh, we have passed a day when the Negro can't 
eat at a lunch counter with the, the exception of a few isolated situations or where the Negro can't check in a motel or a hotel, we are fastly passing that day. But that is another form of segregation coming up. It is coming up through housing discrimination, joblessness, and the de facto segregation in the public schools. And so the ghettoized conditions that exist make for many problems and it makes for a hardcore de facto segregation that we must grapple with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so this is the problem that we face and this is the problem that we are forced to deal with. And we are going to deal with it in a determined way. I am absolutely convinced that segregation is on its deathbed and those who represent it, whether they be in the United States or whether they be in London, England, the system is on its deathbed. But certainly we all know that if democracy is to live in any nation, segregation must die. And as I've tried to say all over America, we've got to get rid of segregation, not merely because it will help our image, it certainly will help our image in the world. We've got to get rid of segregation not merely because it will appeal to Asian and African peoples, and this certainly will be helpful, this is important. But in the final analysis, racial discrimination must be uprooted from American society and from every society because it is morally wrong. So it is necessary to go all out and develop massive action programs to get rid of racial segregation. Now I would like to mention one or two ideas that uh, circulate in our society and they probably circulate in your society and all over the world uh, that keep us from developing the kind of action programs necessary to get rid of discrimination and segregation. One is what I refer to as the myth of time. Uh, there are those individuals who argue that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice in the United States, in South Africa, or anywhere else. You've got to wait on time. And I know they've said to us so often in the States and to our allies in the white community, just be nice and be patient and continue to pray and in 100 to 200 years the problem will work itself out. Uh, we've heard and we've lived with the myth of time. The only answer that I can give to that myth is that time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. I must honestly say to you that I'm convinced that the forces of ill will have often used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. And we may have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around saying, wait on time. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, it is necessary to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals who are willing to be co-workers with God and without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. And so we must help time and we must realize that the time is always right to do right. This is so vital and this is so necessary. 
Now, the other myth that gets around a great deal in our nation, and I'm sure in other nations of the world, is the idea that you can't solve the problems in the realm of human relations through legislation. You can't solve the housing problem and the job problem and all of these other problems through legislation. You've got to change the heart. We had a presidential candidate just recently who spoke about this a great deal, and I think Mr. Goldwater sincerely believed that you couldn't do anything through legislation because he voted against everything in the Senate, including the Civil Rights Bill. And he said all over the nation throughout the election that uh, we, we don't need legislation, that legislation can't deal with this problem, but he was nice enough to say that you've got to change the heart. Now, I want to at least go halfway with Brother Goldwater at that point. I think he's right. If we're going to get this problem solved in America and all over the world, ultimately, uh, people must change their hearts where they have prejudices. If we're going to solve the problems facing mankind, I would be the first to say that every white person must look down deep within and remove every prejudice that may be there and come to see that the Negro and the colored peoples generally must be treated right, not merely because the law says it, but because it is right and because it is natural. I agree with this 100%. And I'm sure that if the problem is to be solved ultimately, men must be obedient not merely to that which can be enforced by the law, but they must rise to the majestic heights of being obedient to the unenforceable. But after saying all of that, I must go on to the other side. This is where I must leave Mr. Goldwater and others who believe the legislation has no place. Uh, it may be true that you can't legislate integration, but you can't legislate desegregation. It may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law can't change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law can make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. That is Dr. Martin Luther King on December 7th, 1964, a speech given before the British group Christian Direction, just days before Dr. King was to receive the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, Norway. So he was en route to getting that prize and stopped in London to give this speech on American civil rights, he'll talk more about South African apartheid in future segments. Figured this would be a great speech to share today. And are you not as struck as I am at how much progress has yet to be made on the very issues that divide our country even still at this point, 58 years later? By the way, we'll share with the show audio today the transcript from this speech, which was discovered just seven years ago uh, in some archives that were discovered and uh, shared with the world. Uh, the transcript, as you follow along with listening to it, is just, uh, again, it's, it's just striking how much progress has and as well has not been made when it comes to civil rights in these United States. So here we are listening to a speech from Dr. King 58 years later and coming to that realization. All right, we do have one more segment here on our Martin Luther King Day Jr. special. Thank you for indulging us. 
as we revisit Dr. King's speech, December 7th, 1964, speaking before a meeting of the British group Christian Direction just before receiving his Nobel Peace Prize that year. More Ron Show on America One Radio after this. (laughs) 